Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 93. Now this is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andy Demasubu. Thank you for listening in. Now, later on in the show, I'll be chatting with Nduisisa Chilembo, a programmer, business analyst and author of a new book called Exploring Consumer Adoption of NFC Mobile Payments in South Africa. Now Nduisisa will speak to me about his research into why South Africans haven't quite taken to mobile payments as readily as consumers in other countries on the continent. But before we get to that, we'll cover the week's headlines, which include Econet Group's Queset TV taking on DSTV on the continent, the outgoing African Union Commission's chairperson appointing a tech advisory panel, and Jay-Z cashing in on the partial sale of his streaming platform title. That's all coming up, but first, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by our friends at GoDaddy. Now, GoDaddy makes registering domain names fast, simple, and most importantly, affordable. They're the world's largest domain registrar, and they are trusted by over 13 million customers around the world. They provide everything you might need to get your business set up online, including award-winning 24-7 support. Now, to save 30% on a new domain name or to use any of their other services, go to trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. That's trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech to save 30%. Now, it's straight into this week's news. First up, the outgoing African Union Commission chairperson, Nkosazana Tlamini Zuma, has appointed a tech advisory panel for the continent. The 10-member team will be tasked with helping African leaders uh, make better use of existing and emerging technologies to advance economic development. Zamini Zuma has cited the need for Africa to strengthen legal and regulatory systems to keep up with innovation. Apparently, the uh, panel hasn't been assigned any specific priorities, but I imagine that issues like uh, personal data sovereignty, net neutrality, Uh, I'd imagine uh, the regulation of mobile and broadband service provision, and perhaps even the regulation of virtual currencies might uh, filter to the top of their agenda. What is certain, though, is that uh, the well-respected international development professor at Harvard Kennedy School in the U.S., Calestis Juma, has been appointed co-chair of the panel, along with Yaye Kene Gassama-Dia, who is a professor at Sheikh Anta Diop University in Senegal. Now, here's to hoping good things come of this development. Moving on now to news from Kenya, where Showmax subscribers in that country can look forward to better service. Why? Well, because Seacom will be hosting Showmax caching servers in Nairobi to provide faster streaming speeds to their Kenyan customers. Uh, Showmax says that subscribers should expect faster response time and less buffering, as well as lower data costs thanks to content being delivered directly. So part of this benefit comes from the elimination of transit costs from servers based thousands of kilometers away. Now, you may recall that uh, last year, Netflix announced that they'd be setting up servers in Lagos to provide better service to Nigerians. And, uh, and of course, they've promised that more will follow. Uh, we're looking out to see where others might pop up. I'm curious, though, to those of you who subscribe to either Showmax, Netflix or Amazon in East and West Africa, in terms of viewing quality, how good is the service you're getting? And... Um, how excited are you, or at least how keen are you for it to improve? 
uh, do let us know on Twitter at African Roundup. We have it under good authority that uh, Showmax is actively looking to strike up new partnerships with mobile telcos across the continent. Uh, not unlike the cooperative agreements, I imagine they already have struck with Telcom in South Africa, uh, as well as Vodacom in South Africa, and then, of course, Safaricom in Kenya. Uh, well, they need to do this, though, if they're going to compete against Netflix, Amazon, and increasingly now if they hope to keep up with Econet Wireless-owned Kwese TV. Now, speaking of Kwese, uh, the Econet Group founder and chairman, Strive Masiwa, gave a stirring update regarding Kwese's aspirations last week. On his official Facebook page, uh, Masiwa revealed that uh, uh, Kwese TV will be rolling out a whopping 60 channels across no less than 18 countries in sub-Saharan Africa. He's also said that Kwese will pursue a, quote, mobile-centric strategy to capitalize on the 200 million-odd people in Africa who now have smartphones as opposed to agonizing uh, exclusively over the 60 million-odd who currently have access to television sets. Now, I reckon uh, pursuing an aggressive mobile strategy also makes sense for Strive and his team, given uh, Econet Wireless's uh, mobile network portfolio on the continent. Um, there's lots to leverage when you consider how easy it would be for Econet to roll out, uh, you know, Quest to existing mobile clients. And in good time, we'll see if that's a card they'll choose to play. However, another interesting feature he's priming the market to latch onto is a flexible bouquet plan for subscribers accessing Quest TV via Dish and Decoder. In addition to an industry-standard 30-day subscription package, Quesse plans to offer 3-day and 7-day subscriptions. And if you're all about your sport, well, Quesse might be the cable company for you because they're making it so that regardless of whether or not you pay your cable subscription, their flagship sport channel, Quesse Free Sport, won't vanish um, or at least you won't lose access to it. Uh, it means you can totally be a freeloader and still get to watch all the NBA and English Premier League action uh, for free. Uh, and because they hold exclusive licensing rights to those two lucrative properties, the NBA and uh, the EPL, uh, I don't imagine it's a, it's a proposition that DSTV could easily copy and paste without losing major bucks. So, yeah, it appears that Quest's mobile-centric focus doesn't mean they won't be giving Africa's most popular pay TV business, DSTV, a run for their money. Fun times ahead, to be sure. Well, to Central Europe next, where the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and New York Stock Exchange-listed tech group Net One UEPS Technologies is acquiring 35% of a bank in Liechtenstein. It's the bank Frick & Co., to be exact. Uh, the former prime minister of Liechtenstein is the bank's chairman. And how's this for some unfortunate trivia? Now, back in 2014, the bank CEO, Jürgen Frick, was murdered. Well, Net One now awaits regulatory approval from the Liechtenstein Financial Market Authority. And should that come through, they'll have two years in which to exercise an option to acquire a further 35% stake in Bank Frick. Now, in case you're not familiar with Net One, they are up to some heavy lifting. One of their subsidiaries is Cash Paymaster Services, a firm that runs South Africa's social grants payment system. Now, it's in fact that business that first started transacting with Frick & Co., choosing them to be their European banking partner to facilitate the deployment of NetOne's products and services in Europe. Uh, that's products like VC pay, fine trading, as well as money remittance applications rolled out in that part of the world. To Nigeria now, where the freelance marketplace platform Asuku has raised a modest amount of funding to launch two new related platforms. 
Asuku is an online marketplace for creative and professional services, which aims to connect freelance professionals to customers across the continent. Now, I think Fiverr.com, uh, perhaps even 99designs.com, something like that. Uh, the marketplace platform trend is definitely catching on. And while Asuku's founder, Rabiu Musa, is reportedly convinced that freelancing is a trend that will go mainstream on the continent, uh, solving uh, widespread unemployment challenges that many countries on the continent face, well, I guess I'm a little more cautiously optimistic about how quickly that will happen. Uh, nevertheless, it's not like they're throwing billions of dollars at uh, this idea. Uh, the money they've raised is said to have come courtesy of Nigerian investors who are currently living abroad. And with the funding, Asuku plans to push forward with two new platforms, uh, Asuku Elites and Asuku SME. Now, Asuku Elite is set to be a business-to-business -business platform. Uh, Asuku will be picking freelancers from the marketplace, um, developing them with a view to outsourcing them to, to companies looking for particular tasks to be done. In, in some ways, quote-unquote, the Andela model uh, or the Gabea model, uh, except instead of coding talent, um, freelancers might range across a number of different tasks. Asuku SME is a platform that will run on a subscription model uh, for startups, SMEs and entrepreneurs and, uh, and basically allow them to save on uh, you know, the cost of hiring people full time by subscribing to one of a range of packages. For example, someone might subscribe to a, a graphic design startup package for you know, 50 bucks a month and get up to five designs per month, depending on what their needs are. So something like that. Uh, but under the funding deal, the startup has six months to, to get their act together and get these new products off the ground. And of course, should these launches pan out, uh, they would be hoping to expand to up to eight countries by 2020. Now, we'll definitely be keeping a close eye on promising startups trying to make a dent in Africa's uh, shared economy space all through this year, uh, particularly those leveraging marketplace platforms to help marry demand with supply. Moving along now to a Pan-African payments deal between Orange Money and Vivo Energy. Uh, now, Vivo Energy is a, a licensee of Shell on the continent. They're partnering with Orange Money to offer customers the option of paying for fuel and other services with mobile money. Now, Orange Money uh, customers will be allowed to cash in and cash out money at any Shell service station operated by Vivo Energy in nine countries on the continent. Now, it's already available in Mali, Cote d'Ivoire, and Madagascar. And um, they aim that by, the, by mid-2017, uh, the six other countries where they both uh, do business will come online too. It should be interesting to see how effectively these two companies will be able to rally their customers to adopt this service. And now for some good news from Uganda, where just 12 months since Phoenix International, you know, the company that supplies ready-pay, pay-to-own solar systems in Uganda, launched a partnership with MTN. They're celebrating having served 100,000 customers. Now, according to some estimates, 80% of Uganda's households currently make do without electricity. And so Phoenix International estimates that they've served 600,000 people who are now benefiting from the 1.2 million watts of electricity delivered via solar units installed across the country. And so Africa's solar power revolution marches on, it seems. To the Middle East next, where an Egyptian healthcare platform called Vazita is looking to provide automated physician, clinic, and hospital booking services in the Arab Gulf, Jordan, and Lebanon this year. Now, according to the company's co-founder and CEO, Amir Basum, uh, Vazita landed $5 million worth of funding from VC interests in the UAE, Sweden, Egypt, as well as Jordan. Now, they're not only looking to increase the 25,000 to 30,000 physician bookings that they're currently doing per month in Egypt, 
um, but raise those to at least 100,000 by the end of 2017. They're also planning to launch a home visit service, start carrying out evaluations of hospitals and physicians, as well as provide a price check service for customers. Now, the startup has so far managed to achieve a growth rate of 500% and uh, create a database of 3,000 clinics. They'll no doubt need to sign up many more clinics and physicians to the platform to sustain that growth. And that's probably why they're looking to the Middle East. Now, staying with North African news, a quick update on progress being made by the Egyptian ride-sharing service Kareem, which is reportedly one of the few tech companies in North Africa to be valued at over $1 billion. Now, you might recall us covering the fact that they landed a cool $350 million worth of investment from new and existing investors late last year. And they're, of course, uh, aiming to raise $500 million, So we'll see whether they make it all the way there. Uh, nonetheless, the firm's co-founder and CEO, Mudassar Shika, has reiterated his ambitions to build on the progress they've so far made in just four years. Karim is now available in 50 cities across North Africa, the Middle East, and now Asia. Uh, this follows Karim launching in three Pakistani cities, namely Islamabad, Karachi, and Lahore. Their launch is also planned for three more Pakistani cities, Peshawar, Hyderabad, and Faisalabad. But only the, quote, economic service will be made available in Hyderabad and Peshawar, uh, while the, quote, business service will be launched in Faisalabad. Now for some international news to round things off. Jay-Z has sold a 33% stake in his Tidal Music platform. Uh, he sold it to the mobile network Sprint for $200 million. Now, the deal has been seen by some as a timely lifeline for a business that hasn't had an easy time keeping up with Apple and Spotify in terms of acquiring and retaining paying customers. Now, the pressure is definitely on for Tidal to work things out because word is Spotify will be going public later this year. And Amazon and Apple remain well positioned to sign up new subscribers. So, yeah, it's pretty much TikTok for Tidal. But um, Jay-Z will no doubt be relieved to have made a return on the initial $56 million investment he, he made when he bought Tidal from the Norwegian firm Aspiro back in 2015. And now the latest transaction with Sprint has raised Tidal's valuation to a new high of $600 million. Now, it remains to be seen whether Tidal is actually worth that much. It also remains to be seen uh, whether Sprint's investment will help attract further investment. And more importantly, whether a strategic partnership with one of the U.S.'s largest mobile networks will have uh, any positive effect on uh, Tidal's fortunes. Uh, they also get the the benefit of having uh, Sprint CEO join their board. And so it'll be interesting to see how Tidal and Sprint package their services and to see whether or not Tidal will become a default service across the Sprint network. And then finally, Apple has joined Amazon, Google, Facebook, IBM, and Microsoft to form something called the Partnership on Artificial Intelligence. Now, it's a research alliance that was first struck in September 2016 to establish ethical guidelines and cultivate transparency and privacy around the study and use of AI and machine learning. Now, Apple got tongues wagging last year when they didn't come to the party right away, of course, living up to their famous reputation of maintaining the utmost secrecy. Um, and of course, it could be argued that a lot of their success has been uh, due in part to their, um, their market leadership in the area of AI uh, a position that many 
now consider them to have lost in recent years. Nonetheless, I'm no conspiracist, but there's something about the sheer power of this grouping that makes me nervous. Um, this despite the fact that they've said that one of their key objectives is uh, to develop best practices and educate the public around AI in critical areas like healthcare and transportation. They're also looking to tackle the potential for biases in AI that have been found to lead to uh, gender bias and racial bias. Still, despite all this, I still feel kind of iffy about it. It's also said that they'll be trying to develop standards around the collaboration between humans and machines to help determine, for example, when a self-driving car should hand off control to its driver or, or decide which pedestrian to hit should there be several guaranteed catastrophic options at the machine's disposal. You know, that kind of stuff. Look, there's part of me that's kind of sitting here trying to work out why this whole thing makes me uncomfortable, and I guess I'm just old-fashioned. It's it's alarming to realize how much power I, and indeed we, all continue to hand over to powerful tech firms like Amazon and IBM and Google and others. I mean, we trust them to basically run our lives and to a large extent run the planet. I don't know. How do you feel about it, though? Are, are you completely at ease and ready for an AI-driven future led by uh, Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, IBM, and Microsoft? Or do you miss the days when uh, VHS tape recorders were cutting-edge tech? Let us know what you think on Twitter, at African Roundup, or drop us an email via hello at africantechroundup.com. And so now, as promised, I'm about to share part of a chat I had with Nzguisisa Chidembo, a programmer, business analyst, and author of a new book called Exploring Consumer Adoption of NFC Mobile Payments in South Africa. I'll be speaking to him about his research into why South Africans haven't quite taken uh, so readily to mobile payments uh, as consumers in other countries on the continent. Take a listen. So last year saw the, the high-profile failure of M-Pesa in the South African market. Um, it's basically the poster child for, for mobile money. Um, all over the world, and yet right here and easily one of the more uh, affluent, uh, more developed countries on the continent. It didn't work. What are people missing? What are, what's a company as big as Vodacom uh, missing about what makes mobile money work? I think uh, one, one of the things that uh, came up was the issue of uh, fragmented systems. So you have uh, one player having their own solution, uh, another player having their own solution, and then rolling them out in, in these silos. But when it comes to, to payments as a whole, uh, they, uh, payments need to be universal. So, for instance, you, would, you wouldn't use Visa if it was only accessible when you're in Guatemala. You know, it, its value proposition drops. Uh, however, its value proposition increases once more, more and more people actually begin using it and more and more merchants uh, uh, accept uh, Visa. So I think that was, that was the case and point uh, here in South Africa in that there are these silos that were taking place and uh, mobile payments need to be universal need to be integrated, need to work in a social way, if I can put it that way. Yeah. And so we're seeing countries like Tunisia and, uh, and uh, now Senegal as well, um, uh, you know, adopting national e-currencies. Is, what, what's the role of, of, of currency or e-currencies or virtual currencies in, in the context of this research and what you're finding in terms of uh, 
you know, the adoption of mobile payments becoming, you know, going mainstream? Well, uh, in my research, I didn't take um, I didn't take or consider e-currencies per se. Um, as I mentioned, I focused it on on the on the consumer and their view of just using their their phone to make payments. Yeah. But give me a sense of what you you make of this trend towards uh, you know virtual currencies, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, um, national currencies. How do you think that's going to help alleviate the issue you 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 just uh, talked about? Um, well, I I feel as though mobile payments are just the conduit for 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 these uh, new currencies that are coming along. Um, as soon as people accept them um, and see the value proposition, because the one one thing that I picked up in my research as well was that the network providers were not providing a value proposition for the consumer. Um, someone would compare to say, okay, what what what's in it for me? It's, it's sort of like a, a web, really, they were spinning to just try and lure new customers into, the, into their network. And, and people kind of see through that, I think, sometimes. Exactly, exactly. People want genuine uh, benefits uh, or, value, or, or value proposition in order to actually change these day-to-day habits that they have. Because it's not, it's not easy for someone to all of a sudden start changing their their day-to-day uh their day-to-day uh, habit uh there has to be a really strong value proposition in order to channel uh that new behavior and so in this in the space uh, in fintech in general are there any trends that are exciting you at the moment anything you see on the horizon that you think might be a big thing um yeah or or anything you would uh, you're cautiously optimistic about Oh, I mean, uh, you know, at fintech, there's always a lot happening. Uh, for instance, you you mentioned uh, uh, cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin. I think that's 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 a that's a game changer. Um, just having uh, those shackles, if I can put it that way, uh, uh, torn apart, uh, and being able to transact internationally without without having to go through the the current. Uh, what can I say? The like a bureaucracy, really. Exactly, exactly. And some people are saying that uh, uh, you know, one of the best you know potential use cases for Bitcoin uh, has to be Zimbabwe. What do you think of that? That is so true, man. It's interesting that you mention it because there are some people who are already jumping on it. You know, uh, I've I've seen people advertising and saying use Bitcoin to do this, to do that. But it goes back to trust. You know, if people are not, uh, people, if people are unsure or they are not well educated about something, uh, for them to use it, it, uh, it takes a lot of time. So if, if, if people can actually build trust around Bitcoin, educate people, there's, man, there's a lot of opportunity around that. And what's your thought about um, what seems to be uh, the trend or oh, okay so there's two things that either happen either governments are, are freaked out by the notion of uh, currencies they, they don't seem to be able to control and perhaps they're not geared up technically and otherwise to facilitate their use and so we see what I perceive as sort of governments acting to block them like what we've seen recently with the Nigerian uh, central banks you know warning against the use of, of virtual currency and that kind of thing and then we see um, wholesale adoption in the case of Tunisia and Senegal, where um, on the you know where governments are probably taking uh, a much more active role in 
the monetary system, um, one that we'd, we, you know, we're taught in economics ought to be independent from, you know, fiscal policy. We're seeing governments take a, f- a far more hands-on role in participating. What red flags or do you, do you anticipate given the two dynamics, these two extremes? That's something that I'm actually focusing on right now in my PhD studies, looking at the ecosystem of a, of a market and then looking at the approach that the regulators take. Um, from my initial studies, it's, it's, it's very clear that when the regulators take on an approach of controlling uh, or trying to, uh, to put together regulations before the actual uh, concept has grown, that the growth is limited drastically. When the regulator takes on an approach of, okay, we are hands off, we'll be monitoring, let it grow, uh, then later on put on uh, restrictions or put on a, uh, put a framework around uh, the concept, the concept tends to mature and grow faster. So definitely if, because of these two different approaches, at the end of the day, it might actually mean that one country will have better economic growth than the other. Some, some countries are going to benefit. Some countries are going to lose because of the approach. And so now, you know, you, you, it's really a fine dance you, you're, you're talking about. There's, on one hand, a definite need for regulation. I mean, the um, regulators internationally have failed us before. Um, economic meltdowns of the past attest to that. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, um, too much uh, regulation, like you say, or paranoia or parano- fear-driven regulation is also not a is also not a, a thing because it tends to stifle growth and innovation. Um, a middle ground is required. Um, how many countries on the continent would you say are ready <laughs> to take that stance? You quickly find that there are certain countries that have more to lose. Uh, than others, and some countries that have more to gain, or you know, just want to throw that hail mary so that they can just leapfrog everyone else within the within the within a region. So you find that there will be countries, there will be certain policymakers who will be ready to hear uh, these radical ideas and ready to implement them, so as to 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 have an opportunity for their economies to to grow. Uh, exponentially. If I didn't know that uh, the new virtual currency that um, many Francophone countries are, are considering to adopt, if I didn't know that France was involved <laughs> in some way, I'd actually hazard that uh, Francophone countries have a lot to gain in trying to shake perhaps what might be legacy chains tying them to obligations from colonial days. Yes, yeah, no, I definitely. I mean, we live in a very uh, competitive economy, very competitive world. And countries are, are looking to outstage themselves to, to bring in business. And this is just one, um, one mechanism or one lever that they can actually uh, push on in order to make them uh, look more attractive than their original neighbors. So put your futurist cap on and imagine uh, a future where the whole mobile payments thing is not being discussed in the context of innovation, but really in the context of the norm. How profoundly different do you think our world would be day-to-day in terms of that? Um, and I'm talking like the mainstreaming of these networks. What would a country like South Africa or Zimbabwe or 
Ghana or Nigeria, Egypt even look like when mobile payments are fully, fully part of the, the fabric of life? For me, my picture is this. I mean, if we, if we look at business, the, the, the fundamentals of business is having, having a product or service, having, um, having a customer, and having a way of getting paid. And then you, th- you think of that concept, and then you, you, you look at the current state whereby we have 7 billion uh, people in this world, and then we have 7 billion connected devices. These are mobile connected devices. This is saturation levels. And if all those devices are mobile payment enabled, that means that everybody can do commerce. Everybody can transact. And for me, that, that means e-commerce can boom, economies can boom. Someone far up north in Africa can buy something in South Africa without having to worry too much about, oh, you know, this payment needs to get approval, this has to, this has to happen, I have to wait for a couple of days. It'll be instant. It's, it's an enabler for economic growth. So basically taking back your power to participate economically. Exactly, exactly. Opening up the doors to the whole, to the whole of the continent. People transacting uh, no, matter the, no matter the region that they're in. Yeah. Many thanks to Nzwisisa for making the time to chat to me about his book. And if you're keen on catching the rest of that conversation, you can find it on africantechroundup.com. And so once again, many thanks to GoDaddy for sponsoring this episode of the African Tech Roundup. Remember that you too can buy your own domain name, build your site, or use any of GoDaddy's business tools and save yourself 30% by going to trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. And so that's it for this week. Do join me again next week on africantechroundup.com. But for now, I'm Andile Masugu. Until next time, do take care, Africa. 